The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. As we continue to worship over God's Word, you can find your Bibles and open them to Daniel 3. In a moment, I'm going to pray, but I want to begin by asking you a question. If you had the opportunity to travel back in history, just recent history, the last 200 years, what event would you go to and visit and witness firsthand? Would you perhaps travel back and see the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II? Because there's a big celebration coming right around the corner. Would you go to a battle? Would you watch troops removed from Dunkirk or troops advance on D-Day? Would you watch some scientific discovery like the light bulb turning on for the first time or the Wright brothers taking flight? Or are you a sports fan like me? Maybe you'd go back and you'd get a first, a front row seat for Jackie Robinson as he broke the color line. Watch him steal home base. Perhaps even overhear his prayer closet as he called out to the living God to help him not return reviling for reviling. Where would you go in history? I'm a history buff. I like history. I like stories. But I like true stories even more. You see, history is not from a person's imagination, but it's by the hand of God, providentially written into life. Today, in Daniel 3, we get to advance much farther than 200 years back into history. But we get to again see facts Actual historical happenings that took place that God wrote on the fabric of human history with his providential hand. And what's amazing is he also wrote it in ink, on scrolls, and it's been passed to us in his word. And it's meant to shape us. Biblical history is history on purpose. History with a spiritual purpose. So what we're going to do today is we're going to carefully walk through this story and see how it was arranged, how the author put it together so that we could see its spiritual message. And then, after we've walked through this story account by account, or scene by scene, we will ask, what is the spiritual purpose for us? What is the message that's being communicated to us? That's our simple outline. Walk through the passage and examine it. Would you please pray with me? It is an absolute privilege, Father, to have your word, to look at it, to study it, to read it. Thank you that it is living and active. And God, just as your word spoke and things came to be, would you speak through your scriptures to us? Would they have the effect that you desire? Would they teach and equip Admonish, correct, train, build up, restore. Would you be at work through your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be reading the text as we go. Please keep your Bibles open. And we're going to begin in Daniel 3. And as we do, we're going to 
start by seeing the ways that this is connected to what Pastor Sam has walked us through in chapter 2 the last two weeks. Daniel 3 verse 1 says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now before we move much farther, we really need to see some key things in this verse. We need to understand that the image that was set up is very connected to the frightening image that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. It was a great image, but if you remember, it was not made of gold. What was it made of? Iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. If you want to double check that, you can glance back at chapter 2, verse 35. And very shortly after that, the interpretation of this dream, King Nebuchadnezzar was told in 238, you, king, are the head of gold. So why would the king make that image? Let's keep looking. It was 60 cubits high. Now, I don't know about you. I don't have like a tape measure that measures in cubits, so I have to kind of do a little bit of work to figure that out. That's 90 feet high, okay? What is that? How, how do we get our mind around that? Well, I asked John Grano. He said in this building from the floor to here, we probably would see the kneecaps right here in the center section of this 90-foot, about nine-story building high image plated in gold. It's pretty, pretty big. Notice he set it up. He set it up. This is a verbal clue that the narrator wants to give us to something that happened very significantly or was talked about happening very significantly in Daniel 2.44. There, it's used twice. The word set up is used twice. And in the days of those kings, those are the kings that, that ruled in the gold, the silver, the bronze, and so on and so forth. Those various kingdoms, that's what the image set up represented. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Whose kingdom is that? Christ's. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand or be set up forever. This was a sure and certain word that was given to the king. Now, what we need to understand right as we begin is those of us that have heard this story before, we just kind of rush right past the reality that what the king was doing was he heard a sure and true word about Jesus Christ, and he said, that's not going to happen. There aren't going to be many kingdoms. My kingdom, all of gold, is going to be set up. I am opposing the king of kings. Yikes. Let's read on. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. Now, a careful reader would just have remembered that they read that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego governed this specific province. So they probably would flash right into their minds. Oh, yeah, our guys. 
they're being gathered to come to the dedication of the image of the king that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He's such a wily guy. He's like, hey, I'm doing a celebration. I'm going to set up my image. Come to the dedication. And you'll find out what happens after that. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So he sent to gather them. They gathered. And who did they stand before? They stood before this great image. Verse 4. And the herald, that is a spokesperson for the king, a herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Notice two descriptors there, burning and fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all. So the original reader would be like, all? What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? All? All the people's nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is the first scene. And just like any good story, it has a cliffhanger. It's leaving the people wondering, what about our guys? But before we find out about our guys, we need to make sure that we notice something very significant. In the book of Daniel, this phrase, people's nations and languages, is very significant. This book is all about kings. It's all about the sovereign king. And in a few chapters, if you flip over to 714, the sovereign king, after his resurrection, will come into the throne room of the Ancient of Days and dominion will be given to him that every peoples, nations, and languages shall honor him. So whether King Nebuchadnezzar knows it or not, he is absolutely setting himself up against the king of kings. That's why this sermon is titled, Showdown on the Plain of Dura. The showdown is between the king and God Almighty. He wants to steal the worship of the true king that all nations, peoples, and languages would worship him. And our hearts go there too. But we'll look at that in a bit. This is a Psalm 2 rebellion. A few weeks ago we heard about Psalm 2 where the question was asked, why do the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed? That's what's going on here. So we're left with the question, all fell down in worship. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Let's look at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. The way that biblical narratives are written is the narrator has the mind of God, has the insights into the hearts of people. And notice here what it says. 
he's telling them their motives. These guys came and maliciously accused. That's a heart motive. Maliciously accused the Jews. Maybe this was partiality. Maybe this was a racial thing, or maybe we'll see in just a moment. Maybe it's something else. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the fairs of the province of Babylon. We just saw that in the last account. As it ended, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were appointed as rulers by the king over this area. That's who they're talking about. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it saves until the very last moment of this scene to find out, did they bow or not? These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice their language there in that last phrase. In each of these three speeches, this is the first of three speeches in this scene, the final line holds the punch. Kind of like, who has the last word? They're each trying to have the last word, or they're saving up all of their oomph for the last word. And notice what they're saying here. These men pay no attention to you. Now, I think we know King Nebuchadnezzar enough. If he had some rulers in a prominent place that were paying no attention to them, they'd be torn limb from limb. So this is certainly an exaggeration. But they also know the king very well. They know that he probably has a big crest that he has hanging around his neck that says, it's all about me. Okay? Because notice what they say. They pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods. They don't say they don't serve the gods of Babylon. They, don't, they say they don't serve your gods. Nor the golden image that you have set up. So they know how to play into his hands. And, and he picks right up and, and starts moving. Look at verse 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have set up, that I've made, Well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now before we get to that last final punchy line, notice this. Notice how the heat, pun intended, has been ratcheted up. At one time, this vast group of people was gathered Three guys are brought. They stand before an image. These guys are standing before the king. They heard a herald. These men hear directly from the voice of the king. This is a much more high-pressure situation. 
Now, he's kind of being nice. Maybe he values their leadership. But they are standing before the king because these men had maliciously accused them, maybe because they wanted their position. But before, all these people were standing together not quite knowing what was going to happen. They maybe had guesses. That's an image. I wonder what we're supposed to do with that. They probably knew. But here, there's men standing against men. This is a highly tense situation. And that's how Hebrew authors build their narratives. Listen to these words, the final punchy line. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That is super significant. Do you realize what the king is saying? He is making this about God. Just as Goliath took upon his mouth to curse the living God and the people of Israel, so this king is doing the same thing. He's making this a spiritual battle. He's basically asking, what God is there that could deliver you out of my hands? I'm the one who's all-powerful. Look at all my power. Look at, I just gathered all these people. They all bowed. Who's going to deliver you out of my hand? Showdown on the plain of Dura. Let's look at their response. Because the gauntlet has been thrown down, the microphone has been dropped by the king, what will Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say? And what will they do? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, maybe because this is the last speech, absolutely every line and phrase is significant. We need to look very carefully at this. First of all, we should ask ourselves, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Are they being a little sassy? I don't think so. They start with Nebuchadnezzar. They start with his name. So some people have maybe speculated that, but they say, O king, later. I think they're saying something different. I think they're responding as First Peter calls believers to respond with gentleness and respect. They're also doing something very different. They're taking the spotlight that's shining very brightly at them. They may, like so much so that they can't even see anybody. And they're focusing it on God. We don't have any answer to give you in this matter, but let us tell you a few things about God. They're realizing that they feel at the center of the situation, but they are not at the center of the situation. They feel under attack, and yes, they are, but ultimately, God is under attack. Then they go on and say, if it be so. That's another phrase of saying, if you carry out your plan to throw us in this burning, fiery furnace— our God whom we serve. That is a very respectful way of saying our God, O King, is ultimate. Where he says we're able to, we serve you. We're your officials. We've been put here for you, but we serve another. We don't serve your gods. We serve our God. 
our God whom we serve, is able to deliver us. Do you believe that? Does your life show that you believe the sovereignty of God and His ability to do amazing things? I think a lot of times when we're pressed and pushed, we don't. Where has God been able to deliver? Thank you to Sam Crabtree for this. He delivered Noah from the flood. He brought his people out of slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand. He delivered them from Pharaoh's chariots at the Red Sea. He delivered Gideon from the Midianites and David from Saul and Hezekiah from 185,000 troops. Our God is able. Our God is the one of whom it is said, or who said, is anything too difficult for me? These men say, he is able. He is able. When they were pushed, when they were close to the fire, they said, he is able. That is amazing. And then it goes on to say, uh, the next few lines are very difficult to translate and figure out. But it says, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. It's very possible, and I'm persuaded, because there's a couple ways to translate it. It may be better to say, and he may deliver us out of your hands. Why is that significant? They don't know. They say just later, but if he doesn't. I think it's better to say, and he may deliver us. Their view of God was so great that not only did they believe he was able, but they believed that he is able to judge wisely whether he should or should not. That's the type of confidence that we should have in our God. Your will be done. That's what Christ said. Your will be done. He may be able to deliver. It's up to him. He can, but it's up to him. But if not... We will not serve your gods or worship your image. They knew their Ten Commandments pretty well. We might have a tough time getting all ten down, but the first two, have no other gods before me and don't bow down to images. Don't worship any other image. Don't make any graven image. Don't even do that. And they're pretty firm and settled in that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to serve. We're not going to worship. We're not going to bow down. We're not going to do that. And notice at the cost of their lives, I think this would be a good moment for we in the American church to put our hands over our mouth and say, God, be our good shepherd. Lead us to the place where we will be ready to surrender our bodies. There are many in our world who are at that place, who do face threats like this. Most of us are not there. God, be kind to us. Help us. Help us to be ready to stand for you when we're called to do that. They were, by God's grace. We're not standing there yet, so we don't have the mercies that we need yet to stand there. But I think now we can pray. We can look ahead and say, help us. Help us. That's the end of this scene of speeches. And a very bold word has been declared. What is the king going to do? The first, the person who's read this for the first time would be asking, what's going to happen next? Man, there's a commercial. What's going to happen next? 
this next scene, it's divided. It's, it's one full scene, but it's divided in half between the hand of the king or the hands of the king and the hand of God. So we'll consider it that way. Please look at me with, at verse 19 with me. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We didn't know his appearance. Oftentimes the narrator doesn't tell us about appearance, but we can assume before his, fa- his face was at least agreeable. Okay, now if you bow, it's going to be okay. Now it's like, against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Remember, this is the hand of the king. What can he do? I can turn up the heat. It was already a burning fiery furnace. Now it's a burning fiery furnace seven times over. Yikes. Then he ordered some of his mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So maybe the big muscular guys that would probably not be so nice as they bound them up and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound. There's a few details here. That was his actions. There's a few details that are really important for us to know. These men were bound in their cloaks. It really wants us to know that they're bound because they were ordered to be bound. They're bound, and later they'll be bound again. Bound, bound, bound. In their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. Now, I mean no offense to graduate school professors, but it makes me think of a graduation and people in their big flowy things and their funky hats that have these dangly things and they're just kind of going like this down, marching in order. That's probably what they look like, maybe. (laughs) And they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flames of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, underline the word three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is the fourth time their names have been repeated, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. This is what the king could muster. I'm going to turn up the heat. I'm going to bind them. I'm going to have my strongest men throw them in. This fire is going to be so bad that I didn't realize this, but whoa, even the guys that threw them in lost their lives. This is a very serious situation. And they're in their cloaks and they're just going to go up like that. That is what the hand of the king can do. Let's look at what the hand of the Lord did. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, we were watching. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Notice that the hand of God contradicted the hand of the king at absolutely every point. Look back at verse 25. 
He threw three men in. God added a fourth. They went in bound. He unbound them. That in itself is a miracle. Maybe he allowed the, the things that bound them to burn up, but not them. I don't know. But he unbound them. They were walking about in the midst of the fire. That's crazy. And they were not hurt. The king's men were hurt. Just even getting close to the fire. These men are not hurt in the fire. And there's more. After he commanded them, then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. I personally think those words are amazing. I don't know if they were thrown in and had to climb out or if they were thrown in and could walk out regardless. They continue to be unburned and unharmed as they either climb out or walk out of this furnace. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw. Notice first the king saw it, then these leaders saw it. This is God at work for others to see. What did they see? That the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. And the hairs of their head, so let's get specific about that. The hairs of their head was not singed, and their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. How unpowerful was the fire? It could not even singe their hair. Now, I don't have much hair, but when I lit my grill in a not very effective way, it exploded and even singed my eyebrows. That was my grill. This is a burning fiery furnace heated seven times over that just killed some guys. No singeing. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. When's the last time you've been outside by a bonfire and not come back home and been like, whew, I stink. This is miraculous. How big is our view of the sovereignty of God? This book over and over and over again will say that he's sovereign in the big things like setting up kings. But do we believe he's big in the small things? Psalm 104.14 says, You cause the grass to grow. Do you read that in your science books? He causes the grass to grow. He can turn off the power of fire or turn it on. He can say, smells like smoke, doesn't smell like smoke. Singes, doesn't singe. His sovereignty is amazing. Do we believe it? Daniel 3, 28. This is how it ends. After viewing all this, Nebuchadnezzar has some final words. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants. Oh, I forgot that part. You're probably like, who is that guy? Come on, preacher. I don't know. I don't know. We're not told. It's not explicit. We don't know if it was the pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ or one of his amazing angels. If one of his angels appeared here, we'd be freaking out. It certainly would look like one of the sons of the gods. We don't know. But we know that God was present, aware, and involved. 
He delivered them who trusted in him, set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any peoples, nations, and languages. Notice we come back to that phrase again, peoples, nations, and languages. Any of them that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, malicious Chaldeans, be warned shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Do you believe that your God is above all gods in his ability to rescue? That's the concluding word. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now please don't close your Bibles. Because I would like us to pause and reflect on what are the things that we just saw there and how are they meant to have spiritual effect on our lives. We, we saw a few of them in passing. Maybe the Spirit was already prompting you. But this is where it gets dangerous for preachers to jump up on their hobby horse and talk about all the things that they want to talk about. What I want to try to do is to talk about the things that this text talks about. So hold me accountable. I want to look at three things with you. The main human character who's highlighted throughout this book and who we're continually, our eyes are going back to them. I want to look at the central scene and see what that teaches us because these things were written for our instruction. And finally, let's look at the grand purpose of this book and ask ourselves, is our heart in line with that? So let's, let's look at the human character that's most prominent. Ask yourself, who is the most prominent human character? From start to finish, more ink is spilled about the king than anyone else. And I want to ask you to do something that probably goes against every natural instinct inside of yourself. When we hear a story, we want to identify with the heroes. I want to ask you to look carefully at the king and ask yourself this question. In what ways are you living like King Nebuchadnezzar? And notice, I did not ask you, are you living like him? I said, in what ways are you? Because I already know that I'm living like him. We are all rebellious at heart and living like him. Let's just consider a couple things. Last week, we saw that the king heard a certain and sure word of God. And instead of getting in line with it, instead of realizing that, oh, there's a coming king that will never end, I need to figure out who that king is. I need to worship that king. No, he said, worship me. Come and worship me. I'm going to expend all sorts of effort to set up this huge statue, this huge image, so that you would worship me, so that everyone would worship me. What sure and certain word of God are you setting aside? Secondly, are you using your power or the power at your disposal to control your world in rebellious ways. Galatians talks about that as living in the flesh. Life is out of control, and what do we do? Ah, I got to get back in control and manage my life, just like the king several times throughout the story. Things were out of his control, he turned up the heat. Things were out of his control, he had people come. He threatened, he continually threatens. He got angry, furious several times, but we do it in other ways. Pouting in self-pity giving in to fear, using savvy manipulation. And that's just to name a few. 
Where are you living like King Nebuchadnezzar, where the world is revolving around you or your mind thinks that way? That's a dangerous place to be. We're given this ugly account of a guy who's going against God's anointed so that we would see the ugliness of our own rebellion. Let me give you one example from my life this last week. Eight days ago on Saturday, I looked ahead to the week and I thought to myself, I do not have enough ability to manage all this. Notice who's at the center of that worldview right there. I don't. And I set aside the certain and sure word that says to me this promise. Do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you, help you, and uphold you by my righteous right hand. And I acted in rebellion, giving in to dismay. You can just ask my wife. On Monday, I was dismayed. Thankfully, God used Daniel 3 to shepherd me because God just doesn't want to leave us in seeing the ugliness of our sin. He wants to bring us to the one, Jesus Christ, who became sin for us. When we see the depth of our sin, we can see the greatness of Christ. For our sake, God the Father made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if if you've never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, come, repent, trust in him. If you have, keep repenting, keep trusting in him. That's what the Christian life is. It's a life of repentance until he returns. It's a life of trusting until we see him face to face. In what ways are you living like King Nebuchadnezzar? Secondly, let's look at the central scene, the response of these three men, the place that our hearts wants to go. And yet once we get there, we realize we need a whole lot of grace to stay there. First, let me ask you, if you are facing wider cultural oppression, malicious accusations, or real-life persecution, do you see that the battle is bigger than you? Do you see that the forces that are coming against you or in the wider culture are actually coming against God? That can be helpful. When we get into Nebuchadnezzar thinking that it's all about me and look at all that that's against me, we forget who it's really against. In, in a sense, it's like we are ambassadors. Oh, wait, yeah, that's right, we are. We are ambassadors sent to the front lines by a king, and we have this massive government or uh, a people behind us. That's who we are. We are ambassadors for Christ. He is behind us. We're simply his servants seeking to speak for him, and that's who these guys were. Do you see that it's bigger than you? Are you responding with gentleness and respect? Again, to the wider cultural oppression, malicious accusations, and persecution. Are you responding with gentleness and respect? Are you doing that on social media? Are you doing that when you're venting with your friends? Are you responding with gentleness and respect when you're at it face to face? That's what they did. We do not have an an we we're not going to give you an answer, O king. Are you trusting in the God who will be with you? 
Remember, we have Jesus Christ, whose very words say, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. We have a God who sees and identifies with his persecuted people. We saw that in the book of Acts. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He didn't say that. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He sees, he knows, he identifies with his chosen people. He is with us. He is with us. Fourth, are you entrusting wider oppression, accusation, and persecution to God, who is the one who judges justly? Do you know that's what Jesus did? As we move towards Easter, have this passage, maybe even memorize it. I encourage you to memorize it. 1 Peter 2.22, which says, When he, that is Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Now, actually, that word himself is just inserted so we can think about it in our English brains. He entrusted all sorts of things, and we can true, and we can too. We can entrust the truth that's not being spoken. We can entrust accusations. We can entrust hurts. We can entrust slights. We can entrust unjust consequences. We can entrust our jobs, our freedoms, and if necessary, even our lives to the one who judges justly. This is a blip. There is eternity coming. We must be people that begin and continue to continually entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Finally, has God given you supernatural faith in his scriptures? That's where their confidence came from. We can't just be Sunday and Wednesday Bible people. We need to be people of the book. Finally, let's look one more time at Jesus. The ultimate purpose of this book, and we'll see it throughout, and you can talk to me later if you feel like it's something different after we make it all the way through, but I'm pretty certain this book is meant to cause us to rejoice in the sovereign king. Rejoice in the sovereign king. So let's just see what this account calls us to do with that. The sovereign king who is opposed. That's what this story is about. This Image, this reality with King Nebuchadnezzar is very similar to another king, Herod, who killed all the two-year-old babies. How did, how did, his, how did this effort with the statue thing go? We're going to find out in a couple weeks that his kingdom ended. How did it go with attacking those babies? Was Jesus stopped? No. What happened when Herod and Pilate conspired together against Christ? Did that stop him? Or the Jewish leaders to hang him on the cross and continue to revile him? And he died no, we serve an unstoppable sovereign king. And just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego climbed out of the fiery furnace, our unstoppable king climbed out of the grave. We serve a sovereign, unstoppable king. May our hearts say, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Blessed be Jesus Christ our sovereign, unstoppable King. Please pray with me. God, you are so kind to us. You call us to look at your word, to revive our faith, to see your greatness, to look ahead to Christ. Thank you that you're coming again. 
Would you help us as we're tempted to be like the king? Would you help us when we face opposition? Would you fill us with your word so that we would know how to see and navigate our world? Would you, God, hold us fast to the end? Whether persecution comes or just all the trials of life that keep trying to knock out our legs of faith underneath us. We ask for your grace. Lift your sun high. Lift your sun high in our eyes, in our lives. May people see the greatness of our King through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.